so much i'm so glad that um i get this opportunity to lead this morning i'm so glad that everyone made it here safely um through the snow thank god for the snow i love so snow so much um i have a verse prepared um and i'm gonna read it real quick it's psalms 911 sing praises to the lord who sits enthroned in zion telling them tell among the people his deeds i love that verse it's simple it's sweet um and it covers the two main subjects that hype has gone through these past 12 weeks. It's worship and disciple making. And um, sing praises to the Lord, worship. And even though I say, I say worship has to do with singing praises, um, worship isn't just us up here singing and playing instruments um, for the Lord. It's us praying for the Lord. It's us reading our Bible for the Lord. It's us making disciples for the Lord. It's coming together as a church family 
and um, teaching and piggybacking on each other's um, knowledge of the Bible and God's stories. Um, and today, um, as we move into the next song, I just want everyone to um, know that God is watching over us and that all importantly, that the glory is for him this morning. And as we sing up here on stage, that we have um, the right heart and mindset to lead you guys in worship this morning. And so will you join me in the next song um, as we move along?
Here's my heart, Lord. 
that song always puts a lump in my throat. Um, and I feel like as we enter a time of communion, we could almost just pass the elements right now as we prepared our hearts um, with thanksgiving and reflection of, um, of our lives. Connor, I appreciate you leading us in that worship. Um, I thought about this past week as uh, Dave um, asked me to, to lead us in communion, and I just wanted to share a few words with you all. Yeah, you please be seated. Thank you. <laughs> this goes back into 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking to the people at the, to the church of Corinth about um, preparing our hearts um, for a time of communion. And uh, at Cor uh, Corinth at the time, there was a lot of problems going on with the way they celebrated communion, and he was just challenging them and, and disciplining them and, and um, teaching them what it was to enter into communion. And so I thought it would be this past week, thinking through um, what it means of what we're going to do in a few minutes as we take those elements, um, is just to, to kind of remember those for us as, as cross-pointers and as brothers and sisters in Christ as we take it. Uh, verse 23 in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 said, uh, when he had given thanks, Paul uh, was, took the elements and when he had given thanks, then he, he was dispersing them. And that giving thanks comes from uh, a, a translation of the word Eucharist um, or what we use for the word Eucharist, which is those elements that we take. And that word is translated, as it says in here, is to give thanks. And so this time of, of communion is, among other things, is for us to give thanks um, for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do in our lives. And I think back even on this time right now as we wake up this morning, and uh, for us we enter a time of, of, of the Christmas season, what fitting way for it to be snowing this morning to, to, to kind of get into that season uh, the feeling of the season that we have, but this time of Advent, where we think back to the to the birth of our Savior and the and the events leading up to the birth of that of our Savior, um, and as we enter that time of Thanksgiving for for that birth, that raising up of that man, uh, to him dying on the cross and hanging there, shedding his blood for our sins, and that we have. Uh, a reason to be here to take communion because of that birth and um, through this season as we draw close to the Christmas time and we celebrate his birth that we remember that we are sitting here today and we are saved and we are sinners saved by grace because first he gave his son to us. Paul explains that the bread that we, we will take today in the, in the cup was a symbol of Christ's body that was broken for us and that was sacrificed for you. And the cup of the juice that we will drink is a symbol of the blood that was shed and poured out onto the ground for you. After he, uh, Paul gave us the elements and we took the elements of, of, of communion and, and many of us have done this for years and years and years of our lives that we've taken the elements, and we've, we've taken them and um, gone through the ritual. But I just want to slow ourselves down here and understand what Paul t tells the church after he tells us to take those elements. 
He says he wants us to examine ourselves. And so what he wants each of us to do is before we take those elements and before we put them into our bodies is to take time to examine so we're not taking the body and the blood of Christ unworthy. He says eating and drinking without discerning the body, your body eats and drinks judgment on ourselves. But verse 31 says, but if we judge ourselves truly, if we examine ourselves and set aside our pride and humble ourselves and, and, and look at our lives truly for who we really are, then we can discern our body. And so what we do is we pass the elements out and we, and we, we go into a time of meditation and time of prayer is to examine truly our, ourselves. And it's not a checklist that we go down to make it a ritual, but to stop in the craziness and the, and the, and the hustle and the bustle and the, and the hurriedness of our lives and just slow down. And I feel like uh, the, the worship that we had today truly just brings us into that communion to start out with. So it's a time that we have a chance just to stop, slow down and reflect in our lives. Do we have open and flagrant sin in our lives that we're not willing to, to, to take care of? Do we have people in our lives that have pointed out sin in our lives? And are we refusing to say we're sorry and, and to truly repent for that sin that's in our lives? And if we do, that's what Paul's saying, is that we'll take this communion in an unworthy manner. And we'll be disciplined by God if we do so. And let's not forget that part. It says in verse 32 that we'll be disciplined so we won't be condemned along with the rest of the world. God is a God of judgment on us as well as a God of love. And we also remember that too. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, examine yourselves. And I'm sure you're seeing right now, well, wait a minute here. I struggle with sin. I'm sure there's many sins in your life that you struggle with. I struggle with wandering eyes, or I struggle with my addiction, or I struggle with gossip, and I struggle with you fill in the blank. But maybe you're saying, but I want to walk right, and I'm sorry for those sins that I commit. And I feel guilt, and I feel remorse, and I long to obey. Then no matter how long you've been a Christian, that is what it means to examine ourselves, to realize that we have that guilt and feel that guilt and to feel the need of repentance. And then we take communion and we thank God for hanging on that tree, for shedding his blood for us. So it's a time for us to examine our lives. Now, if there's those times where we truly examine ourselves and we are not being remorseful or not obeying, then let the, let the tray pass by you. Okay, it's, it's, it's a time for us to get right with God. And if there's something that needs to be taken care of, this is a time to feel that in your hearts and to take care of that. Remember when we take the elements, when we take the, the bread and we take the juice. It's the body that was given to you, to us. And it's the blood that was shed for you and for all of us here. 
if the volunteers want to come up, we can uh, pass the elements out. But as we take this, as we as we take the cup and the juice, it just slow down our lives. And I know it's for many of you, it's it's hard because your your heart's going a thousand miles an hour to get here to church, and your brain's going a thousand miles an hour. I know there's Sundays I sit here and it, everything's just racing, but just get into your little shell and think about what we're doing here right now. Make sure that we take both uh, the cup and the, the little piece of bread and the juice are stacked on top of each other. Make sure you take one. We'll have two little cups. And then let's just wait and we'll take the elements together after it's all been passed out. And when he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And take the bread. And in the same way, also, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup, the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink the juice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of communion that we can draw close and examine our lives before you and before your word. Lord, we are thankful, Father, ultimately first, that you sent your son to this world, not to condemn this world, but the world through him would be saved. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we have. We pray that you would um, have us each examine our hearts and our minds and our lips and our actions, Lord, that we would uh, be worthy of the elements that we took, the body and the blood. Lord, we are thankful for this uh, day. We just pray that you would be with uh, Dave now as he brings the word to us, that you would encourage us and uh, grow us in our hearts and our hearts and our minds, Lord. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, get to the book of um, Daniel. That's where we're going to be this morning and uh, be here for the next uh, three or four Sundays through January 1st. On the 18th of December, we're going to pause and celebrate Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, the, uh, at 4 o'clock on that Saturday afternoon, we'd love for you to come join us. And uh, as we celebrate Christmas Eve on those days, um, or on that day, uh, Next week, then, we're going to talk about a disciple-making activity that we are uh, going to create for households, Crosspoint households, to do on Christmas morning, as well as in that time leading up to Christmas morning. So next week, we'll talk about that. Uh, first impression volunteers, if you want to begin passing out the connection cards now, that'd be awesome. Uh, if you are with us for the first time, we'd love for you to fill out the gray section, and so we can get to know you, and I want to draw your attention to a couple things at the bottom. One is baptism, is the next step. I anticipate that there's going to be some baptisms happening over this next month. And so if that's a next step for you, if that's something you want to talk about, please mark that box so we can be in contact and uh, follow up with you. All right. And then the other thing is Discover Crosspoint, our membership class. We're encouraging all Crosspointers to go through it uh, again over this course of the ministry year. We've done one 
every month, September, October, November. We're doing one this afternoon from 2 to 4 in the afternoon. So if you're able to be with us today, sign up at Guest Connections. If you're not, then mark that box of membership, Discover Crosspoint, and we'll let you know when the next one is. And we'd love to gather together, take two hours to encourage us in our faith. It's honestly less about discovering who Crosspoint is and more about discovering who the New Testament church is and who we are called to do or who we are called to be and how we are called to live 3D, if you will, the devoted, dedicated, and driven. So sign up for that afterwards. All right, uh, today we begin a new series that will last through the end of February. This series is called Exile and Return because it will take us through the rest of the Old Testament and kind of hit some big marks of the Israelite nation on their, in their exile and then their return through books of Daniel, Esther, uh, Nehemiah, and Ezra. All right, adult and student resources are available at Guest Connections, four bucks a piece. really encourage households to get that. This last week leading up to today was really, really good, really well written. Some great encouragement in there, some great questions to consider. So I'd encourage you to get that after the service. The beginning of Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Many of us in this room are Christ followers. And so for those who have trusted in Christ for our salvation, forgiveness, it means that we have a new identity. We've experienced a new birth, there's a new heart within us, a new spirit has been put within us. The scripture would say that our bodies are living temples for the Holy Spirit. We're not the same anymore, so as a result of that new identity we have in Christ flows a new activity, which Romans 12, 2 speaks of. And that new activity is that we are not to be conformed to this world. That this world that we live in has patterns, it has routines, it has rhythms, a way of life it is not that we are not to be conformed to, meaning we're not just supposed to go with the flow or go with the crowd or not to blend in, if you will. Instead, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, meaning God's ways are not our ways. His ways are not the world's ways. And so in our minds, we choose to agree with the Lord in His ways. And we say we're going to live by the Word. We're going to be people of the Word. We're going to live in a way that doesn't conform to the pattern of this world, but instead conforms to the Word. And that begins in our minds. It begins with us choosing in our minds to live with biblical convictions. First Peter does a great job of giving this picture of our new identity in Christ and then how that flows to our activity as a Christ follower. Listen to verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful, sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So our, our identity as in Christ is chosen, royal, holy, special. And then our activity is to declare the praises of him who has given us that new identity. For the believer, our story is that we know that at one point in our lives that we were not saved. We were not God's people, but now we have received mercy. And as a result of that new, holy because of Christ identity, we reject sinful desires. 
We instead live such good lives so that the people around us, those who don't know Jesus yet, would see those good deeds and not glorify us, but glorify God. Notice that Peter urges us to reject sinful desires, live good, God-glorifying lives because our identity is as a foreigner or an exile, or some of your translations may say alien, meaning the pattern of this world that we live in is completely foreign to us. It's from outer space. The kingdom of God notoriously is upside down from the kingdom of this world. And so if you're a Christ follower this morning, Part of your identity is as a foreigner, an exile, an alien, meaning this is not your home. You're a citizen of heaven. And so in the time that we've been given here on this earth, we do not live for ourselves, but we live for the Lord. We've, we've been set apart for his purposes in this world at this time, at this location in which we live. What you probably found as a Christian is if, if you're not hiding your faith under a bushel, if you're public with your faith, if the people you work with, the people you live with, your friends, they know you're a Christian, all right? If they know that's part of your identity and you're actually public with your faith, which is what we're called to, personal faith but not private, personal and public but not personal and private. If people around you that know that you're a Christ follower and they don't know Jesus, you will have times where they will look at you as if you're a foreigner, an exile, or an alien, Wait, why, why, why would you do that, they ask. Why, why would you give your money generously to the work of a church? Why, why would you not go out drinking with us? Why would you choose to forgive your spouse after all they've done? Why don't you want to talk about so-and-so with us? I mean, we're not part of the problem or the solution, but we really like to talk about them, so why won't you talk about them with us? Why don't you join with us in that? After all they've done, how would you not be bitter toward them? How can you not be freaking out about our nation right now and anxious and laying awake at night about our nation right now? Why would you not sleep, sleep with or live with your fiancé before you get married? I mean, you've got to test drive that thing, right? Have you ever had those moments where people are looking at you as if you're an alien, a foreigner, an exile. And when that happens, you think to yourself, I, I hope you do. Yep, I am. I'm a foreigner. I'm an exile. I'm an alien. According to Scripture, that's part of our identity in Christ. And so how do we live as exiles in this culture? The book of Daniel will lead us well into answering some of these questions. Remaining faithful in the context of a foreign culture that's opposed to the things of the Lord is a major theme of the book of Daniel. People sometimes ask me, so how how you doing? And my answer is often this. It's, well, I'm, I'm desiring to be faithful. I'm seeking to be faithful. I'm trying to be faithful by the grace of God. I'm trying to be faithful as a, as a follower of Jesus, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, as a family member. That's my desire. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. And then sometimes the waves of culture sometimes make that difficult, not necessarily conducive to a life of faithfulness. But what I found is swimming upstream, while it may be sometimes be tiring, it's also the way to blessing. It's the way to joy. It's the way to, to delight. It's the way to freedom, to swim upstream for the glory of God, by the grace of God. Students, today in this story, you'll be introduced to four teenagers who sought to 
be faithful to God. They were in a very difficult, unknown situation, but you see their trust in God, their willingness to obey. So don't miss this encouragement to live faithfully as exiles and foreigners in your context, your conviction, your way of life. It matters at the age you are, not just at an age later. So the book of Daniel takes place during the years of 605 B.C. through 536 B.C. God had told the Israelite people all the way back in Leviticus that if they were unfaithful to God's law, that they would be sent into exile. Faithlessness would result in exile. God, who had given them the promised land by grace, would send them out of the promised land if they continued to rebel. If God had not cared for his people, he wouldn't have warned warned them all the way back in Leviticus. If he did not love, he would not have disciplined. Because the goal, the goal of discipline is not to just to punish. The goal of discipline is to restore, to bring back into a right relationship with God. If God were not just, then he would let sin go unpunished. And if he were not love, then he would not save this remnant of Israelites who would one day, out of that family line, be born the Son of God, the Savior of the world, whose birth that we celebrate this month. Years and generations of disobedience and breaking God's law are now, have now led to the fall of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, the city has been overrun, the people are sent into exile, taken into captivity, and so God's people are kidnapped. And so how will they stay faithful in exile? They must first remember their true identity, verse 1 in Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the Babylonian nation God had used to overrun the Israelite nation of Judah to bring judgment. And Babylon wants the best and the brightest of the Israelites so that they can begin to build the Babylonian kingdom. So the king says, I want the young generation. I want the best looking, the skillful, the most intelligent, the most adapt to learning. And I want to teach them the way of the Babylonians. He wants to indoctrinate them, not in the way of the Israelite, but in the way of the Babylonians, which was in opposition to people of faith, people of God's. But he wants to indoctrinate them in the way of the Babylonians. And then verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food, and the king ate, that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So you have this really difficult situation. It looks like disaster. Teenage kids are torn apart from their parents, and now they're in the service of a king who does not worship the king of kings. And these young men are now brought into the land with force, and everything around them is new. 
There's a different language, a different set of beliefs, a different set of uh, political system, laws. Everything is new. They are like aliens in this culture. And we, we sometimes assume that if we just trust in God, that we kind of enter into this magical contract where everything is going to go right with us. That we'll never hit trial, we'll never hit test. We will never experience loss, that every green light, every stoplight will be green for us because we are Christians, all right? Or every grocery line that you choose will magically be right and it's notoriously wrong, all right? At least it is for me. We assume that everything is going to go right for us. But that's far from the testimony of Scripture. All through Scripture, we see that it doesn't necessarily go right or everything is, is, is hunky-dory with the Christ follower who trusts in the Lord. But what we do see is God never forsakes, even in suffering. And in this season, if you're experiencing loss, if you're remembering loss, God has not forsaken you. And his presence is with you to comfort the brokenhearted, to be near to the brokenhearted. And so when trial and test enters our life as Christians, how do we respond? How will Daniel and his three friends respond in this moment? What do we do when it seems that the culture is more and more antagonistic to people of biblical faith? Is our approach of, well, when in Rome, do what the Romans do? Or in this case, in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do? If our faith in Christ is just, is just this kind of thing we attend or thing that we do, then it's going to crumble in the midst of a test or trial or when culture begins to um, push up against that. This is what happens when college students, when, when kids that maybe have grown up in church, but they never really transitioned to own their own faith. It was always mom and dad's thing, and mom and dad did that, and so I did that. And, but then when they get out from underneath that environment and live on their own, then they're like, well, I'm going to depart from that because they never really owned and transitioned to their own faith. Our faith has to be rooted and anchored no matter our age. So when Daniel and his friends, they've been ripped apart from mom and dad, they're now in the midst of going to Babylon University. All right. Will they depart or will they be anchored? Notice the king gives them new names. All their Israelite names had significance. It referred to some attribute of God. God is gracious. God is helpful. Things like that. But here they've been given new names based off of false gods of the Babylonians. And so their identity has this potential of being shaken. They're being schooled in the Babylonian ways, reading the literature. They're being immersed in this culture. This culture is a foreign one. This is not their home. And so we'll see these young men remember their true identity. Them receiving new names will not change or shake who they truly are, who they know themselves to be in the Lord. A people who are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people called to live for the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness. We'll see these young Israelites embrace the risk of holiness. They will not just do what Babylonians do, they will do what God's people do. And that's pursue holiness. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has assigned, or who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see 
that you are in worse condition than the youth who are on who are of who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. So the chief is saying, if you don't do, if you don't eat the king's food, then it's on my head, literally, and I'm going to lose my head. So I need you to obey here, Daniel. I need you to eat the king's food. Otherwise, you're going to waste away and not be good looking and strong. But it says in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with food. Christ followers are those with resolve, with this conviction, kind of deep in our heart, deep in our gut that says this is how we're going to live according to Scripture. With a focus that reflects 1 Peter 2, that says I'm going to reject sinful desires and I'm going to pursue the Lord. Or 2 Timothy 2.22, which says I'm going to flee the evil desires of youth and I'm going to pursue righteousness and, 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 and purity and peace and love and faith. When you're resolved in something, it means you're not making up convictions on the, on the fly. It's not like, well, I have this really deep uh, resolve to do this, and then five minutes later, you're going to drop it. Because, well, um, culture began to say it's right or wrong, or because uh, we entered this test or trial, or because of temptation, and we kind of drop those resolutions, those convictions really quickly. The Christ follower is not one who determines convictions on the fly. So in a dating relationship, you're not saying, what are our physical boundaries as you lay on the floor next to each other? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? And you just justify yourself all the way to the lion's mouth. It happens, right? Instead, as, as Christ followers, if we're going to date in a way that glorifies God, then we're going to walk in the light with one another, and we're going to walk in the light with other believers who hold us accountable, who say, how are you doing with this? And how are you glorifying God? And how are you guarding one another's heart? In your finances, you're not saying, well, we'll give to the Lord if we have some left. Instead, you're, you're planning with intention, with faith, saying, well, we're God's people. We're going to trust in the Lord. And so we're going to give our first fruits, if you will. And we're going to live off the rest. These convictions of Daniel were settled in his heart and lifelong before the test came. So why reject the food? Well, there's a few ideas. One is that the food was offered to Babylonian idols beforehand, so they would defile them. It would um, go against God's dietary law that he'd given them in the Torah. I liked what the ESV Bible said in, in reference to this rejection of food. It said this, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of the Babylonian culture. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture which was the king's goal with these conquered subjects. So the chief is saying, you're either going to food, eat the food um, or, or I'm going to die. And Daniel's saying, I'm resolved to not eat the food. So what's going to happen here? Well, we see a clue given in verse 9, which says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave Daniel compassion and favor. So we're going to see how God is at work in Daniel's willingness to walk and live by faith. God is in control, even in this tension-filled situation. Verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. 
At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. It's tempting to make Daniel the hero of this story, right? But a human leader is never the ultimate hero. Yes, we can learn from Daniel's way of life. He sets an example for what it looks like to live faithfully for the Lord. But, but God is the hero here. God is the one at work. God gave compassion and favor to the eunuch to allow this to happen. In verse 17, you'll see that God gave understanding and knowledge. Daniel acts faithfully, but God provides protection and provision. Daniel trusts God and God gives. How do we remain faithful in the midst of an exile and a foreign culture? Well, we walk by faith and we trust God to do the work. And God works not because of our walking. God works because that's his character. God is faithful. Because he, we walk, he works. We walk, he works. So sometimes we just, we sit and we expect God to work. We walk, he works. Or we say, I'm going to run really, really hard, and God, I hope you can catch up with my awesomeness, and I'm going to work this right. No, we walk, God works. We walk, God works. This is the essence of faith in Christ, that we are trusting in God's ways, that, that his ways lead to life, delight, joy, salvation from judgment, freedom, eternal life. And so we are resolved to live by his ways and not ours. Because over and over in Scripture, we see that command, Psalm 1 being a perfect example. Read it this week. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you, are, you, are we walking in step with the wicked and the world, or are we walking in step and delighting in the word of the Lord and the Lord himself? Daniel takes a step of faith here. Ten days, I'm going, veggies and water, no donuts, no steak, no takeout from the pizzeria, all right? It's terrible, all right? What does God do? He's red wheat belly. He's not going to do it. God strengthens them, and they're stronger, and they're finer looking than they were afterwards. Daniel and his three friends are not going to overthrow the Babylonian empire by themselves. But God is going to work through them, through their obedience. One commentary said it this way, God's faithfulness through the ages and his promises for the ages to come give us abundant hope to act faithfully in present difficulties. God's faithfulness through the ages and his promises for the ages to come give us abundant hope to act faithfully in present difficulties. So we walk and we live by faith because our, God, because our faith is not wishing upon a star, even though the stars look awesome, all right? It's not wishing upon a star. It's faith in an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, never forsaking those who love him, God. I loved this quote from the adult guide. Daniel and his friends were forced into Babylon, but they were not forced to let Babylon into them because that was not their identity. They're going to live by godly convictions instead. They were resolved in this. And so are you a Christ follower living by convictions anchored in the word? Are you embracing holiness as a way of life? Are you willing to swim upstream for the glory of God? Are you willing to look like an alien? or a foreigner, or an exile in this culture. Verse 17, As for these four youth, God gave them learning, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs 
brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God was at work through their obedience, through their faith-filled living. And God was giving favor to them in this new land. A very similar action that God took in the story of Joseph in Genesis. God was not forsaking them in Babylon. He was actually sending them to Babylon. He was sending them to represent him, to reflect him. In John 17, Jesus says that just as he's been sent into the world, so we, his disciples, are sent into this world. That's why after being saved, we don't take this magic Willy Wonka elevator up to heaven. But instead, we are sent into this world, sent on a mission. We are saved, but we are sent. And so in the world, yes, but then not of the world. Because Jesus says this in John 17 later, that believers in Christ are not of the world, meaning that our lives are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We've been set apart as God's people. And so in this tension of in the world but not of the world, God's people through the ages have notoriously gone to one of two extremes. The extremes, the big words, are syncretism and sectarianism. All right? Simpler words are absorb and withdraw. Syncretism goes too far into culture. It dilutes the gospel for the sake of relevance. Instead of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. It just becomes, oh, he's, he's another path up the same mountain. So in this extreme, then we kind of blend a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of our own thoughts, a little bit of uh, maybe what culture says, a little bit of another religion, and we, we create the stew pot and we call it our faith. But it's no longer anchored in the word, it's just anchored in some concoction that we've created in a black cauldron, if you will. And so we tend to receive anything and everything in culture. We absorb the culture like the Babylonians here. The ways, the beliefs, the standards for living are founded not in the Word of God, but in, in culture. Where they begin to view the, view the Word through a lens of the culture. Instead of viewing the culture through the lens, the filter of the Word. And so we say, if culture comes first, then we say, well, this part of Scripture doesn't make sense at all. That seems completely counterintuitive, so we cut that out. But we like this, and so we keep that, because that seems to align here. And instead of seeing, uh, seeing the culture through the lens of the Word, sectarianism, then, is on the other extreme. This is withdrawing from the culture. The religious who say, hey, I got this uh, three-ring binder for you, and it's got, uh, got a lot of rules and a lot of uh, man-made things that kind of ripped out of context of Scripture, but we think you should obey this. And we're going to place this up as the same level of authority as Scripture itself. Yeah, I know these rules really aren't found in Scripture, but, but we're going to call them the same, if not even greater. So this group tends to retreat to the Christian storm shelter for fear of going into the world, for fear of getting dirty. And so they're prone to seeing others sin more, more easily than their own sin of spiritual pride or haughtiness or indifference or hatred, frankly. They're prone to argue more about the reality or the morality of others instead of testifying to the gospel of God's grace 
which deals then with the morality. So these are the extremes that Christians are prone to, and we are prone to extremes because it just makes it easier in our heads, right? We don't want to live in the tension of being in the world but not of the world. And so we just want to go to one of these extremes because it just makes it easier in our heads. So the, so the withdrawn camp, their tone becomes very angry, uh, bitter, hateful. If you're going to come to Jesus, then you better deal with that sin first. How are they ever going to deal with the sin if they don't come to Jesus first? Christ is the one that actually gives them power over that sin. Otherwise, you're just giving them a gospel of works. And then the absorb camp, their tone just becomes, well, who am I to tell you what's right or wrong? It's grace without truth. And why do you need grace if you don't have truth? What, what's the beauty and the necessity of grace if truth is not a part of the picture? It's the clean, cleaning up the gospel by removing judgment, right, wrong, sin, wrath. Not only do individuals have the tendency to, to go to these extremes, but so do local churches. To either just withdraw, hunker down, let's wait for the trumpet to sound, or absorb the culture to the point of, well, we've missed the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. To be in the world but not of the world, this is the hard road to walk. This is messy. But if you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Christ, why would we assume that our ministry should be any um, cleaner than his ministry? It's messy. When we look at the life of Jesus himself, we know that neither one of those extremes, absorb or withdraw, reflects him. He called out sin. He spoke of eternal judgment. He was most definitely set apart and holy despite living and ministering in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And yet he did not hide or retreat from those who were desperately in need of him. He didn't say, I can't get near you because you're dirty. Or you're so opposite of who I am or what the Bible says that I, I can't even engage in a conversation with you. No, he did life with them to the point where re religious leaders scoffed at him. But his mission was to seek and save that which is lost. He'd, he'd come to call the sinners to repentance, not the righteous or the self-righteous. Notice in chapter 1, Daniel didn't say yes to everything, and he, did, and he didn't say no to everything. He took on a new name. He went to the university. He read the books. But he was also resolved to live for the glory of God. To live on mission in this tension of in the world but not of the world. Daniel's a reminder that it's possible for us to live faithfully for the Lord in the midst of a foreign culture. It's possible to be resolved to obey the Lord and yet live in a way that glorifies God and draws people to himself. Daniel's faithfulness to God would have ramifications long past his time. One belief of our culture is just live for today, Look at your own belly button because, heaven forbid, you look at anyone else or just think about today. Who cares about tomorrow? Just think about today. But for the Christ follower, we live in light of eternity. You have no idea the impact that your present-day faithfulness will have on future generations. You have no idea the impact that your present-day faithfulness will have on future generations. So may we be a people who are found faithful 
and trusting God to be at work as we walk by faith. If the worship team could come back up. As we close in worship, we're going to take our offering. Again, the way this world would say, you are crazy to give to God the first fruits of your money because it's your money and you need to decide what to do with it. And, but God's ways, God's economy, so to speak, is upside down again from this world. And so as God's people, out of that identity that we have in Christ flows this activity that says we're going to store up our treasure in heaven because we see that investment, so to speak, far greater than the things of this world, far greater than the things that uh, moth or rust could destroy. Again, you and I have no idea the impact that our present-day faithfulness is going to have on future generations including how we give. We have no idea how God uses as we give, how God uses that, our present-day faithfulness to trust Him, how God will use that to impact not only our lives but future generations. Let's stand up. Let me pray for the offering and let's close in worship. Father God, thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You that You, are ste- you have steadfast love for Your people. And I pray that as we give, that You would help us to give cheerfully and in a matter that of heart that says we trust you lord but even as we give may this be a confession to our own hearts that we trust you may you be glorified may we be found faithful because not only are you faithful in in the past but you are faithful in the future may you expand the gospel may you expand your kingdom through our obedience We love you. May lives be changed because of your work and our willingness to walk and live by faith. May you you be exalted in our giving, in our singing, and in our way of life this week. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, this week, would you send us into this world and would you remind us that we are not to be of this world? Would you help our lives be an offering of worship, an offering of sacrifice, and that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we'd be transformed by the renewal of our minds and may you be glorified in all of that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sign up for Discover Crosspoint this afternoon. Have a good week. God bless.